I want you to open up today uh, to Mark. We're going to start out in the Gospel of Mark. We are on part nine of our study on the Olivet Discourse. And this is a ten-part study, so we'll conclude it, Lord willing, next week. Um, Today's lesson is subtitled, The Parable of the Ten Virgins. And we have been discussing, as you know, before our resurrection break for some eight weeks, the greatest prophetic sermon ever given in the scripture. And it was, of course, given by the greatest prophet who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the Olivet Discourse, which was spoken on what day of the Passion Week? Tuesday. Thank you, Terry. Tuesday of the Passion Week. It was actually late Tuesday afternoon as the Lord sat down to take a rest on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and he answered the Matthew 24, 3 questions that were posed to him by Peter, Andrew, James, and John on behalf of all the disciples. And it was in response to their second question in Matthew 24, 3, which is, or was, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age, that he then presented a panoramic account of a the seven-year period of tribulation that will immediately precede his second coming. And we took our time as we studied his answer, as he gave that panoramic account of the tribulation. We took our time in five lessons, which were lessons number 133 to 137. Then in our previous study, before our break, what did we look at? We discussed the parable of the fig tree. And now my fig trees are starting to have little leaves on them. And I I think about this parable every time I see those leaves. We discussed the parable of the fig tree in which the Lord used a very simple illustration from nature to communicate to the generation that will be living when the tribulation labor pain signs take place that they will be the generation to experience his return. And then the Lord concluded the Olivet Discourse with a series of admonishments or warnings or appeals, and that was in Part D. If you're looking at your outline there on little page 7, the beginning of your books, um, he gave a series of admonishments. And we looked at the flood admonishment, the thief admonishment, and the evil servant admonishment where, in a nutshell, we could say he was saying, in all of those admonishments, and even the the other two that we'll look at this morning, basically what he is saying is, be ready, be ready, be prepared. I have given you many signs that will indicate to you when my coming is very near. So don't get caught unprepared, like the people of Noah's day, who were so preoccupied with what? With just the cares and concerns of their daily life, you know, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, that they ignored the many divine signs and warnings that had been given to them. He says, basically here, I don't want to catch you as a thief in the night who comes unexpectedly and robs you of everything that you possess. Don't be as the evil servant who didn't seriously contemplate his master's return you know, he thought, oh, well, he'll return one day off in the future, and, you know, he really didn't even look, look for it, his coming. And what happened? He was caught red-handed in the midst of unfaithful service and sinful living. 
Instead, Jesus is saying, you know, through these admonishments, he's saying, be ready for me. And what does he mean by being ready? Right. It's speaking of salvation readiness. He says, be ready, be saved, and be watching so you won't be caught off guard and thereby spend eternity apart from me in endless torment. And, of course, specifically, he's speaking to the tribulation people. The people will be living during the tribulation, but we can take this also and learn from it because we should also be ready, shouldn't we? So that we won't be, number one, we need to be salvation ready, and number two, we need to be practically ready. We need to be living holy, separated lives so that we won't be caught ashamed at the Lord's coming for us in the rapture. Well, now, in the first part of our lesson for today, we need to complete our look at the preparation admonishments. There is, as I said, a total of five of them, and we've only looked at the first three, all of which, the first three were found over in Matthew 24. But the remaining two are not found in Matthew's gospel, which is unusual because Matthew gives us our most complete look at the Olivet Discourse. But for the remaining two, we need to turn over to Mark, first of all, and then Luke. Mark gives us the sleeping porter admonishment, and Luke gives the Lord's daily care admonishment. So at this time, I told you earlier, are you open up to Mark? Mark 13? We're going to look, first of all, at the sleeping porter admonishment, and this is found in Mark 13, verses 33 to 37. And just look with me as I read the Lord's words. Mark 13, 33. Take ye heed, he says, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore. Notice how many times he says watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all watch. So what he's saying specifically to Israel and tribulation saints, he's saying to all, really, to you and I too. What are we to be doing? Watching and waiting and being prepared and praying. Well, the first thing I want to point out in this particular admonishment, which is called the sleeping porter parable or the sleeping porter admonishment or warning, is that for the third time in the Olivet Discourse, the Lord used the words which are actually a command, take heed. Third time, he says, take heed. To those who will be living during the tribulation, Jesus said, first of all, this was back in uh, verse 5, if you want to, I have to turn a page to look at verse 5 in my Bible, Mark 13, 5, he said, take heed lest any man deceive you. Then in verse 9, he said to those Jews and tribulation believers who would be persecuted, uh, unprecedented persecution by the unholy trinity of the Antichrist, you know, and the false prophet and Satan, he says, take heed to yourselves. Why? Because they'll be persecuted so badly they'll just need to take heed, hide and try to survive. Take heed to yourselves. And now, in verse 33, he gives a third command warning to believers of the yet future tribulation period. And he says, Take ye heed, 
Watch and pray, for ye know not what the time is. Remember, if you just look at the verse preceding that one, verse 32, the Lord had just said that no man nor holy angel and not even he himself, not even the son of man, at least at that time, while he was still in his humanity, in his incarnation, no one knew except the Father the day or the hour of his return. And, of course, there he's speaking of the second coming. So in these three scattered take-heed warnings, we find that the main emphasis of the Olivet Discourse is, as I said earlier in the introduction, to be on guard, take heed, be on guard. The generation that will experience the signs and the events of the tribulation days, which we've talked about for many weeks, whoops, will need to be on their guard against false teachers. False teachers, that's why he said, take heed that no man deceive you, because false teachers and false, false Christ will be prolific. They will be everywhere. They also need to take heed against fierce tormentors. Take heed to yourselves, because you'll be persecuted. So false teachers, fierce tormentors, and also they'll need, need, need to take heed regarding the Father's timetable. Notice I had all F's and T's. <laughs> false teachers, fierce tormentors, and father's timetable. Because no man knows the day or the hour, so take heed to the father's timetable. And watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. So the be alert message is also presented, as we saw in the uh, blood, thief, and evil servant admonishments, it's also found here now in the sleeping porter admonishment. In verse 34, what does the Lord compare himself to? Of course, he's the son of man. He compares himself to a householder who went off on a far journey. Didn't we? Haven't we found that a lot of his parables talk about a king or a householder or a master going off somewhere on a far journey because he knew he was about to do that? He was about to go off on a far journey. And as he left, he gave administration of his household affairs into the hands and the authority of his servants. Very simple parable. And he gave each one of his servants a task to perform in his absence. And he assigned the, uh, the porter, or the doorkeeper, we could say, he assigned the doorkeeper to keep watch over the gate to his house. You know, they'd have an outer courtyard, and he was to be the watchman over the gate to the home. The owner, of course, rightly expected that the responsibilities he had committed to each of his servants was to be faithfully performed in his absence while he was gone, even though they would no longer be under his direct eye-to-eye -eye observation and um, supervision. So if a servant's job was to guard the gate, then he was to perform that duty faithfully until when? Until his master came back, until his master's return. That was his duty. He shouldn't neglect his duty because the owner might uh, return at any time. He didn't know when the owner was coming back. His owner could return at any time of day or night. And um, if the doorkeeper should happen to think to himself, that his master might not return at any one moment, what might he do? 
get a little bit lax in his duty, wander off a little bit, go shopping to Walmart, you know, or, or take a little nap. And that might well be precisely when the homeowner could come home and find his servant gone or sleeping. It says here, doesn't it? Didn't it say sleeping or am I? Yeah, verse 36, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Now, I don't really need to spend a whole lot of time on this particular parable because, again, this, the message is so simple. The warning is extremely simple. Jesus was saying to those who will be living in the last days of the tribulation to be continuously watching and praying because he will come and they will need to be ready for him. And they'll even have it better than we do because we don't know at any one second, do we? The rapture is imminent. It could happen right now. Uh, but they'll be able to at least calculate. They might not know the day or the hour, but don't you think they'll get within a week or so since they know it's going to be 1,260 days from the time of the abomination of desolation? So, so it, you know, if the warning to them is to watch and pray, even more so is it amplified for you and I. And, and he says, you don't want to, the warning is be, be on guard because you don't want to be caught sleeping. And what does sleeping speak of symbolically? You don't want to be caught in a state of spiritual neglect. Sleeping talks about spiritual neglect. I'm having a hard time talking because I have two cold sores on the inside of my lip. So in case you notice, my lip's doing funny things, that's why. And they're very painful. <laughs> Well, let's also look very quickly um, at the next be ready admonishment. And for this, I need you to turn over to Luke. Let's look at Luke, Luke 21. Look at verses 34 to 36. And this is called the daily care admonishment. 34 to 36. These aren't real exciting passages of scripture, but, and again, the message is the same. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let's look at what he has to say. Verse 34 to 36. And take heed to yourselves. There he says that again. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that that day, the day of his return, come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. That's talking about earth dwellers. Those are unsaved people. His coming will be as a snare to them. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Here the Lord in his continual grace and mercy, throughout, which we've seen throughout this uh, great prophetic discourse, has been doing, the Lord has been doing everything he can to warn the generation alive during the seven-year tribulation to turn to him in saving faith before it's too late. He presented all kinds of signs so that they could know. You know, the disciples had just said, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And he, he went overboard, didn't he? He gave them all kinds of signs. Not only, you know, wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and 
uh, famines and what else, earthquakes. Haven't we seen an increase in earthquakes, it seems like, all of a sudden? <laughs> earthquakes, and then he gave them the sign of the abomination of desolation, and then the signs that would precede his coming when the sun would grow dark and the moon would turn like blood, and then there will be the sign of the Son of Man. He gave them more than just one sign. So he's giving ample um, warning here uh, to that generation to turn to him before it's too late. He, he gave them all these signs so that when they witness them or when they read about them or see them on TV, um, they will know who he is because he had, you know, they'll know, hopefully, that he is omniscient God because he predicted all those things thousands of years ahead of time. He foretold the future. So people watching the news during the tribulation and reading the Olivet Discourse or reading the book of Revelation can say, wow, he really knew what he was talking about. He knew, the, he knew the end from the beginning. He must be who he claimed to be. He must be omniscient God. And, um, and so therefore, they, you know, he's hoping they'll get saved. He also gave them warning after warning to be ready for his return so that they would not be like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were caught unprepared when judgment came. And so they won't be like the people of Noah's day. I'd already mentioned this, who were so consumed with the daily cares of life that they paid no attention to Noah, no attention to the animals marching into the ark two by two, no attention to when Methuselah died and um, all the preaching of Enoch and Noah. And of course, it was too late for them when the door to the ark shut and judgment overtook them. His words of warning, which, of course, are spoken primarily for believers during the dark days of the yet future tribulation, obviously also have application for you and I today. It is all too easy, and I stand before you guilty of this today, it's all too easy for even Christians to get weighed down by the cares and concerns of this world. You know, when you're cleaning out your house to... Make it like an accordion so you can fit your family's stuff back in. You know, I thought we got rid of all that stuff. We gave them the sofas, and we gave them the, all this stuff, and I, ah, our house has finally got some breathing room. And guess what? It all came back in. <laughs> and I spent two weeks cleaning out closets so there would be room for them. But, you know, it, it is hard as a mother. I can really, I'm empathizing with you young girls again, all over again. It's all coming back to me. <laughs> how difficult it is, you know, to have time for the Lord when you're so overwhelmed with, with little ones and, and dogs and just cooking and etc. But it's, it is easy to get weighed down by the cares and concerns of life. There are far too many distractions that can so swiftly cause us to get our eyes and our minds and our hearts off of eternal things. It's far too common to fall into the trap of indulging the appetites of our bodies. Not, I'm not talking to mothers now, but I'm just talking to the you know, world in general and even Christians. And to allow the gratification of our senses to take top priority. So many people, and I'd say the vast majority of people, find it much simpler, much easier to succumb to the stress and anxieties of this life and um, avoid reality with escape tools, escape mechanisms such as alcohol, pills, drugs, um, the relentless pursuit of pleasure, 
endless television or anything else that helps to numb the mind from facing life and the reality of sin and death. A lot of people are out there just doing everything they can to distract their minds from thinking. I had a brother-in-law like this. He'd, do, he'd just stay constantly busy with entertainment and the pursuit of pleasures just so he would never have time. And even when he went to bed at night, he had the TV on all night long because he didn't want to stop and think about death and reality and life and sin and the eternity. But people will do that. They'll numb their brains or they'll just keep so busy that they don't have time to think because they don't want to get depressed. It's, it is far more difficult, and the more I've been a Christian, which is coming up on close to 40 years, I can't believe it, but I have, I have decided it is immensely more difficult to live, to live discipline, disciplined disciplined lives for Jesus Christ. Would you agree? I mean, you'd think it would get easier as you grow in your spiritual maturity, but um, it's tough. It's constantly a battle to live a disciplined life for the Lord Jesus Christ because there's just so much out there to distract us. And a lot of it is good things. You know, family is not like it's a big negative but it will, it can be used as a snare to get our focus off what is really important. It is not easy at all to give diligent attention to our duties as his servants and to be continually taking heed that our hearts are not overcharged with the concerns and with the cares of this life. An overemphasis with the daily concerns of life can eventually make us dull and lifeless in our Christian service. And that's the trap I've been falling into because I feel like I'm neglecting some of my duties here at this church, you know, just so distracted. But I guess the Lord is understanding, especially, don't you think, with mothers and grandmothers? All of you say yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and um, even seemingly benign things, as I said, they can become a snare. We need to take heed to ourselves. That's the bottom line. We need, need to take heed to ourselves that we don't fall into the numerous traps of the world and of our flesh, you know, traps that slowly, inch by inch, coax us away from the attention that we should be spending on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because he always should get the preeminence, shouldn't he? He deserves it. He comes before anyone. He, you know, before husbands, before children, before grandchildren. He should be our number one concern and priority. Because we're no good to anybody else unless we're keeping our relationship right with him. And, and we need to take heed to our spiritual growth and our readiness to meet him. Because he could come at any one time. And we don't want to be caught ashamed at his appearing, do we? I don't. If the people living in the tribulation period are warned to be continually ready and, uh, you know, watching and praying, then how much more, as I said before, should you and I be in living in a continually ready state for his return in the rapture? Remember, we don't sit around waiting for labor pain signs, do we? I mean, it's interesting to see the, the foreshadows of those signs and to, to hear about earthquakes all the time. And, um, but we're not looking for labor pain signs. We're not looking for antichrist signing peace document signs. We're not looking for abomination of desolation signs. 
We don't look for signs. The church isn't all about signs. The church doesn't ask for signs. What does the church, where we, we're not looking for a sign, we're listening for a, a sound, right? The late Vance Havner said that. He said, I'm not, I'm not looking for a sign, I'm listening for a sound. The shout of the, you know, the archangel and the blast of the trumpet. With half of the world's population having died during the inconceivable destruction and persecution of the tribulation days, half of the world's population will die during the tribulation. And right now it's getting close to 7 billion people. That'd be 3.5 billion people. Well, I guess, you, you know, you remove how many Christians there are, whatever that figure will be. I have no, no idea, do you? I hope it's millions and millions. I would hope it's even a billion, but I have no idea. Only the Lord knows the number. But it'll be a lot of people will die. Um, so with that many people dying all around them, those who are yet alive will be doing one of two things. Either they will be coming to Christ in faith, or they will be turning themselves totally over to their depraved, depraved natures. And they'll be turning themselves totally over to sin and to corruption. In such a time of unprecedented trouble and turmoil, it is not going to be easy for young believers to keep themselves focused on Christ's return with everything going on in the world. You know, they'll be talk about distractions today. Can you imagine the distractions they'll be encountering with everything going on at once? Wars and famines and, you know, starving to death, not knowing where you're going to get your next meal and uh, especially if they're believers, not being able to buy or sell. They'll be so preoccupied, you'd think, with just the next day's daily bread um, that it, it will be hard to concentrate on Christ's return and their godly walk with him. Don't forget that every single tribulation Christian will be less than seven years old in their spiritual lives. So we could say that the majority of them will be spiritual babes. Now, I know you can grow a lot, you know, if you're in the Word constantly, but they'll just be so busy trying to hide and run out and get some food and just to stay alive that I don't know how much time they'll be able to spend in the Word. I hope they'll, you know, have, have one of my Bibles and one of your Bibles, and they'll be studying like crazy. And you can grow in a hurry. I know my husband and I did. Well, we were starving to death when we got saved in our 30s, and we couldn't get enough. And you can grow in a hurry. But I'd say the majority of them will be spiritual babes, making it difficult for them not to be distracted by the harsh daily concerns of their lives. They'll be struggling, as I said, just to survive the persecution of the Antichrist and his wicked forces. If, so if anyone will need to be in a state of continual prayer, it will be the tribulation saints. They will need to be living on guard like men living in an enemy camp. Because they will be like people living in an enemy camp, a worldwide enemy camp, keeping continual watch over um, their hearts and keeping constant alert against the ensnaring world around them, their own weak flesh, and a clever, very, very busy, angry devil. The saints of the tribulation will need to continually be praying for grace to lay aside every sin that doth so, or every weight and, and sin that doth so easily beset them. And uh, for the ability, they'll need to pray for the ability to keep focused on Christ, who is the author and finisher of their faith. And isn't that what you and I should be praying for, too? Same thing. 
that we can lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily uh, beset us and be keep ourselves focused on Jesus. They will need to pray for his strength every minute of every day just to endure their crosses and to keep their uh, hearts fixed on the joy set before them when he does return. And they'll be ushered, if they're alive, ushered into the millennial kingdom. If they die for their faith, that's probably even better because they'll receive a martyr's crown, a glorified body, and they'll also be able to live in the millennial state in their glorified bodies to keep their focus on the joy set before them. And isn't that, what, again, what you and I should be praying for and thinking about, keeping our focus? You know, we have to bear a cross now, need to die to self, um, um, need to even understand about the fellowship of his sufferings because we are persecuted and it's going to get worse for our faith. And there are little ways that we're persecuted. You know, we're not accepted by the world out there. Um, but we haven't seen anything yet. If the Lord tarries. But we, and also we need to, um, to, to constantly keep the joy that is set before us in mind and pray for that. You know, we're just here temporarily. And a far better life it lays before us. We have to keep our focus right. They'll need to pray that nothing will interfere with their readiness to meet him so that they will not be ashamed at his appearing or as they stand before him at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, to be rewarded for their works. Remember that continually. Keep that in your minds. One day you're going to sta stand alone before Jesus. You know, you're not going to be able to blame your husband or anyone else in your life for why you didn't do service for the Lord. It's just going to be you and him. Well, you know, what'd you do for me? Is it all going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble? Sometimes I wonder if I'll have anything left. <laughs> you know, have to get after I get my flesh out of the way, all that will be burned up. I don't know. But one day it's going to be you and him. Stand, you know, you're not going to be judged for your salvation. So I hope everybody in here is saved or you won't stand before him at the Bema seat. But one day we will also be judged for our works. And anyway, all of this watching and praying that they will need to be doing is true for you and I as we await his return for us. Well, let's turn back now to Matthew's gospel. That's where we uh, left off. And believe it or not, we're finally going to get into Matthew 25, the second chapter of the Olivet Discourse. You know, the Olivet Discourse is primarily found in Matthew 24 and 25. And all this time, we've only been in Matthew 24. So finally, we turn to the 25th chapter. Now, following along with the chronology of events in the first half of the tribulation, remember that we saw that in verse 8? All these are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus, first of all, talked about the first half of the tribulation, the beginning of sorrows. And then he started to talk about the second half of the tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation. And uh, then he kind of backed up in verse 15 and talked about the main event that will occur in the middle of the tribulation, which will be the abomination of desolation. And then when he was finished with talking about the beginning of sorrows and the great tribulation, he talked about his second coming at the end of the tribulation and the signs that will precede his second coming. And then he talked about the regathering of Israel. So everything has been chronological so you know so far in the Olivet Discourse and then what what he did was he sort of had this big giant parentheses after he finished going through the whole tribulation he had a big parenthetical uh, section that consisted of prophetic warnings 
warnings, admonishments. And those admonishments included the parable of the fig tree and the five admonishment parables that we just finished discussing. You know, the, the thief, the flood, the sleeping porter, I can't remember all of them, but that was a giant parenthesis. And basically what he was saying in that giant parenthesis was what? Everybody say it together. Be ready. <laughs> I'm coming back at the end. Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Basically six times he said it, including that parable of the fig tree. And now in, verse, in chapter 25, he again picks up with his chronology as he concludes his discourse with three more parables. Matthew 25 consists of simply three parables. That's what the whole chapter is, three parables. And once again, it is important for you and I to remember that these parables are to be interpreted, like everything else in Scripture, in their context. And what is their context? The Olivet Discourse. Remember, the Olivet Discourse was not spoken to the church, was it? It was not for the church. It's not about the church. It was spoken primarily to Israel during the final days preceding the Lord's second coming. Secondarily, the Lord spoke the Olivet Discourse for tribulation believers who will one day be reading this discourse and learning from it. Thirdly, he spoke this discourse, really, uh, for anyone in the tribulation, saved or not saved, who would be willing to pick it up and read it and listen to his words. Fourthly, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for all of us, right? So it's profitable for you and I to be studying as well. Because a lot of it, even though it wasn't spoken primarily for us, is applicable to us as we await the Lord's return in the rapture. <clears throat> But primarily, he's speaking here to Israel. The people of Israel center of prophecy in the, old, the uh, Olivet Discourse, the whole discourse. Israel's at the center. And this continues to be the case in Matthew 25 as well, where Jesus is still now in the process of answering his disciples' question about the sign of his coming and the completion of the age of anticipating the Messiah and then the subsequent beginning of the earthly messianic kingdom. Now, I said all that to say this. When we now begin our study of these last three parables of the Olivet Discourse, which will be the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats, we need to remember, we need to keep in mind that these parables are not spoken to the church. They're not about the church. And therefore, neither are they about the rapture of the church. Now, that made a difference when we looked at the parable of the fig tree, didn't it? A lot of us have heard the parable of the fig tree taught, or not the fig tree so much as the uh, about two men in a field and one is taken. That's where a lot of us have heard it talked about, the you know, preached as regarding the rapture, but it wasn't. It's about the second coming. And that's going to be true as well, especially in the parable we're going to look at this morning, the parable of the ten virgins. A lot of you have probably heard the parable of the ten virgins, you know, five wise and five foolish, taught with regard to the rapture. 
I'm sure you have, because I have. But that's not what it's about. It's about the second coming. Now, this is interesting, too. The first two parables, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, have to do with the Lord's judgment. I told you he's picking up on the chronology. He's already talked about the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation, and his return. Right? So what comes next? Judgment. So the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 speak about his judgment upon living Israel. In other words, he's going to judge all the Jews alive in the world. Some Jews will be saved, some won't be saved. And so that's what, um, and, and the, the parable of the ten virgins, in that parable he emphasizes the need for inward salvation. While the talents parable, we won't get to that until next week, but he emphasizes in that parable the um, need for outward service. So if you just read the talents parable, it almost sounds like works, a works salvation. But you have to put the two together. The virgin parable and the talent parable go together. One talks about inner salvation, which is evidenced by outward service. And then in the third parable, which is the parable of the sheep and goats, he's going to talk about another judgment, which will take place after his return. He'll already have judged all the Jews. Who will he judge next? The Gentiles. And that's what the parable of the sheep and goats is all about. The sheep are the saved Gentiles who will go into the millennial kingdom. The goats are the unsaved Gentiles who will be sent into the lake of fire. So that makes sense, doesn't it? And that's where he ends the Olivet Discourse. So he's given us a chronology of the entire time from the... Uh, the signing of that peace treaty, which begins the whole thing, until he is finished judging everyone and the millennial kingdom begins. So let's begin now. All we have time for the rest of this morning is to look at the parable of the ten virgins. So if you look with me, I'm going to read Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. He says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Notice they're carrying two things there. They're carrying lamps, and they're carrying vessels. I want to make sure you notice that. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And this is where you've, you've all been taught, I'm sure, somewhere along the, the way, that this is about the rapture of the church. It isn't. Verse 7, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready 
that would be the wise virgins, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Sounds like Noah's Ark, doesn't it? <laughs> Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. And here's that word again. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Since the, the Lord Jesus here was using the illustration of the Jewish or, or Eastern Oriental wedding customs back in his day in order to relay his message here, his, his spiritual lesson, it is important for you and I to, to know those ancient customs because they're quite different from our merit, you know, engagement wedding customs today, especially here in the United States. And I know we've talked about this before with some of you. This is review. But um, in, in Jewish customs back in the Lord's Day, the joining together of a man and a woman began with the initial engagement, which was generally arranged by the fathers of both the bride and the groom. Once the engagement was, uh, <laughs> was contracted, then the betrothal period began. And uh, it began with a small ceremony, you know, just with immediate family there in the home. After the contract was made between the two fathers, there would be a little ceremony in which both the bride and the groom exchanged their wedding vows, and uh, th they were officially considered married. This was just their engagement, their betrothal. But they didn't, uh, they, they didn't live together. You know, they were considered officially married. They didn't live together, and their marriage was not consummated in physical union. And, but still, they were legally considered married. And their marriage could only be broken by uh, a divorce, a document of divorcement, or uh, death. And in the case of death, if one of the the two died, the other one was considered a widow or a widower. And the betrothal period generally lasted a long time. It lasted usually about 12 months, which may or may not be considered a long time. I don't know. Nowadays, I guess they're a little bit shorter than that. And during the time of separation, the bridegroom was busy doing what? Building a dwelling place. Remember the Lord in John 14 said, you know, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house and many mansions. What they usually would do is the, 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 the bridegroom would go back to his father's house and build on to, to his father's house a place for he and his wife. That's why my, in my father's house there's many mansions. You know, just keep adding on to the father's house. That's what we're doing with our family right now. <laughs> we're adding on. Um, and you know, they say that's a trend. Did you read, did you hear about that on the news? Because of the economy, a lot of families are living together, which makes sense. You know, you share the gas bill, the electric bill, the water bill and everything. And so family, they're like making houses with two kitchens and two separate, oh, I know I'm getting off. And, but I think that's kind of cozy. It would be, it would be easier if there were two kitchens. A little bit better, but. Anyway, that seems to be the modern trend. So it, while they were betrothed, they were separated, and the bridegroom was busy preparing a place for he and his bride, while she continued to live with her parents, waiting anxiously for the return of her betrothed to her. And she didn't know when he would return. Uh, you know, generally it was about 12 months, but she didn't know the day or the hour, did she? 
And when the bridegroom had completed the home for his bride and his father gave his approval that it was time to depart for his bride, the groom gathered together his friends, you know, his groomsmen, and came in surprise to her home to take her with him. You know, that's, <laughs> she always had to be ready, didn't she? She couldn't have a, a, a mud mask all over her face or Claricel or whatever. She had to always be ready because she didn't know when he would come. And right before they would get to her house, guess what they would do? Shout. There would be a shout. This is all a picture of the rapture, the rapture of the church. Um, he would shout, he and his groomsmen, as they approached the bride's home. And this second phase, you know, the first phase was the, was the uh, engagement with the fathers, and they'd say their little wedding vows. And this is the second phase, when the bridegroom would go to the bride's home and surprise her. That's the second phase, and that is definitely a picture and type of the rapture of the church. Now, the third phase of the traditional Eastern wedding was the marriage feast. Guests had been uh, invited to the wedding much earlier. Actually, the, all the guests were invited to attend the, the wedding celebration. Now, remember, they've already had the wedding ceremony. After the two, the two fathers made the agreement, the, the two people said their vows. So they had that ceremony at the beginning of their engagement period. But now what they're waiting for is, of course, the consummation of the wedding and then the feast that takes place afterwards. But the guests, the guests had all been invited like a year earlier at the, at the time of the betrothal. So they had a whole year to, to prepare and to plan and to go out and get their wedding gifts. <laughs> um, and so, but then um, they were sent a second invitation right as the wedding feast was ready, you know, to tell all the previous, previously invited guests that the marriage banquet was now ready. Come on, you know, it's come, time to come and enjoy all the delicacies that the uh, bridegroom's father and mother had prepared for them. And remember, we took a look at this two-step process of the invitation when we discussed the wedding banquet that the king had for his son back in uh, lesson number 125. If you weren't here, you can go back and read that. But we discussed all about that. The uh, presentation of the bride to the groom was made as soon as the couple. Now, see, he, he comes to her house with his groomsmen and other people who gather together to surprise her. They come to her house with, you know, a shout. She, she gets herself ready in a hurry. She comes out, and then they all, there's this big processional. They go to the father's house, and they enter into the father's house. And at the time, uh, at the time they do this, the bride is then presented to the groom by the um, friend of the bridegroom. Now, remember who was the friend of the bridegroom in the Lord's? Who was he? John the Baptist. What The friend of the bridegroom would take the bride's hand and he would place it into the hand of the groom. And see, basically, that's what John the Baptist did. He introduced the church to her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sin of the world. He, he's the one who introduced Jesus to us, to the church. And then the couple would go into a private chamber, which uh, is called the chuppah. 
<laughs> which I may pr be pronouncing wrong, but that's the way I pronounce it. Is this H-U-P-P-A-H? How would you pronounce that? Hoopa. <laughs> They'd go into the hoopa, and that, that's where they would be left alone. Can you imagine while everybody's outside? <laughs> They're left alone in the hoopa to consummate their marriage. And the groom would only emerge to announce <laughs> to everyone that the marriage had indeed been consummated. Talk about embarrassing. And um, then he would remain with his bride in the hoopa, the bridal chamber, for a period of seven days. Woo! <laughs> That's a lot of hoopa. <laughs> Surely you like that. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I mention that, because if this is a picture, as it would seem to be, <coughs> of the church hidden with Christ in heaven, heaven is the hoopah, uh, for a period of seven years before she returns with the bridegroom to earth for the great marriage supper of the Lamb, then it is one more support, strong support, for a tree tribulation rapture. Do you get me? <laughs> I mean, before, she, before he would come out with his bride um, to enjoy the marriage supper of the land, or the marriage supper with all the invited guests, they would, the two of them would remain hidden for seven days. Okay? So, if this is a picture of the rapture, which Jesus tells us basically in John 14, 1 to 3, that it is then that means that the church would have to be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation in order to remain hidden, you know, with, with her bridegroom in heaven for seven years before then the two of them come back and present themselves to all the invited guests and go into the millennial kingdom where they enjoy the marriage supper. Are you following me? Is everybody following me? Okay. So that's another, I've given you quite a few supports for a pre-tribulation rapture, but that's just one more. It really fits the picture. <clears throat> While the bridal couple remained in the bridal chamber, the guests, the guests all eagerly anticipated the returned appearance of the bridegroom with his bride, coming out from their private chamber to join the guests in celebration. And this is the symbolically pictured phase of the wedding ceremony, or the wedding feast, I should say, that will occur at the Lord's second coming. And I believe, you know, the wedding ceremony, or the feast, would last, depending on how wealthy the father of the bridegroom was, you know, the wealthier he was, the longer the marriage supper would continue. And the father of the bridegroom, in this case, is God. So I think the marriage supper of the Lamb will continue throughout the whole thousand years of the millennial kingdom because, you know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is that the marriage supper of the Lamb will be here. I believe it won't be in heaven. I believe it will be here on this earth and we'll be, we'll be the bride. You and I will be, we'll be the bride. Well, back to the ten virgins parable. The ten virgins in this parable symbolize living Israel living Israel, all the Jews who are still alive at the end of the tribulation, who eagerly await the arrival of the bridegroom, her Messiah. And this group would include 
the 144,000 divinely sealed Jews, who are coincidentally also referred to as virgins in Revelation 14.4. You know, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they're said to be virgins. Now, you can debate on whether they're physically virgins or it just means that they kept themselves defiled, undefiled from, from the world and the Antichrist and all that. You can debate all that, but maybe they're both. But they're also called virgins. They'd be part of the wise virgins here in this parable. And contrary to what we have all probably been taught, the ten virgins of this parable do not represent the church. They don't represent the church because the church is the bride who returns with the bridegroom. The church isn't waiting for the bridegroom at this point. She is with the bridegroom in the hoopah. The virgins represent Israel awaiting the arrival of both the bridegroom and his bride. You notice, if you read this parable again, you'll notice that there is absolutely no mention whatsoever of the bride in this parable. She's, she's not mentioned. She's not even seen with the ten virgins um, because she has already been taken by the bridegroom. You know, when he came to her house and got her, which symbolizes the rapture, that little shout, and, and he took her to the father's house, the hoopah. So the parable, like everything else that we've been discussing in the Olivet Discourse, is not about the church. Thus, the ten virgins are not symbolic of those of, in the church age who are anxiously awaiting the rapture. The ten virgins symbolize the bride's attendants who are awaiting the return of the bridegroom with his bride out of the hoopah. You see, the attendants, her attendants, didn't go with her into the hoopah. <laughs> They're waiting for her to come out with her bridegroom and to then celebrate with them the wedding sup supper in the millennial kingdom. They symbolize, I say this over and over again so you get it, and then it's in your notes and you can reread it, but they symbolize living Israel, which has indeed been extended an invitation to this kingdom celebration. Hasn't she? I mean, the whole Old Testament is an invitation to Israel, to the kingdom. So then, the bridegroom represents who? Who is the bridegroom? Right, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The unmentioned bride of this parable represents the church. The ten virgins represent living Israel at the time of the Lord's return. And there's yet another main character symbolized in this story, uh, and he is the Holy Spirit, and he is represented by the oil. Five of the waiting virgins were wise, and five were what? Foolish. Five were wise, five were foolish. The difference between the two groups is that the five foolish virgins carried lamps but they had no oil in their vessels. They had a lamp in one hand and a vessel that was supposed to have oil in it in the other hand. They had lamps that had wicks in them, and they had vessels, but what was not in their vessel? Oil. No oil in their vessels. Whereas the five wise virgins had lamps with wicks, vessels 
with oil. They had both. It says at the end of verse 4, in their vessels with their lamps. They had oil in their vessels with their lamps. There was a, a fatally serious neglect on the part of the foolish virgins considering, uh, concerning the oil. Outwardly, outwardly, as is initially true concerning wheat and tares, you know, we have both wheat and tares in every church, and you outwardly look at them, and they're all smiling, and they're all in their suits with their neckties, and they all look alike. Well, not nowadays. I can't even say that nowadays, but they, you can't tell them apart outwardly, the wheat and the tares. And same thing is true with the ten virgins. Outwardly, all ten virgins looked alike. They were all virgins, number one. They all carried lamps. They all awaited the bridegroom. And they all even eagerly went out to meet him. Outwardly speaking, there was nothing to tell them apart. There was only one difference between the two groups. And that difference centered on what? Oil. Oil in the vessel. The oil is all significant. Is what made the difference between being wise and foolish. Now the lamps, the lamps, oops, sorry, wrong hand, that's the vessel. Lamps, the lamps carried by the virgins represent the word of God. Represent the word of God. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. We live in a world of dark sin and the only guide in this darkness is the Holy Scripture. It's our lamp. The only sure hope and genuine comfort for anyone in the evil darkness of this world is the light from God's world, word, which points the way through and out of the prevailing night. And don't you find that to be true? Have you had a calamity in your life or have you had a trial or a tribulation? And if you haven't, there's one up the road, I promise you. <laughs> This, you know, it doesn't matter sometimes what people say and how they put their arm around you and cry with you, etc. Et Nothing really gives you comfort apart from this word. And it's amazing how the comfort will come from just reading the pages of Scripture. And, and I have found that to be true over and over and over again. So if you're going to comfort somebody, use a verse of Scripture. That's where the comfort comes. So the lamp represents the Word of God. Um, during the spiritual darkness and the various times of even physical darkness of the great tribulation days, that's the last three and a half years, there is going to be deep, deep need for the light of God's word. And notice each of the ten virgins had a lamp. They all had God's word. They had a copy of scripture. That's why, you know, we need to leave them behind for them. Um, and they all understood that it was necessary to use that lamp for guidance through the darkness to the returning bridegroom. However, in order to give light, a lamp in those days had to have what? It had to have oil. Pastor John Butler writes this in his commentary. He says, quote, There is a great contrast in the diligence of the two groups. One group took adequate oil with them in their vessel." But the other group did not. The lamps, which these virgins took with them to meet the bridegroom's party, were lamps that only a small that had only a small oil reserve in them, and thus needed to be replenished periodically with oil. Therefore, it was necessary to carry with them some extra oil in a vessel, so that when their lamp ran out of oil, it could be replenished, you know, and keep going. Today, 
it would be like carrying extra batteries for a flashlight. So when the batteries wore out, they could be replaced, and the light of the flashlight could continue to shine. That puts it in perspective nowadays, doesn't it? End of quote. Oil, I'm sure you know, is one of eight symbols for the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We know from Scripture that oil is definitely a symbol for the, for the Holy Spirit, like a dove is a symbol, so is oil. <clears throat> Only five of the virgins had oil in their vessels. You know, pretend like I'm holding a little clay pot, and in it I have oil. Only five had oil in their vessels, which they could then use to fill their lamps. The vessels, and we've talked about the fact that the lamp symbolizes, what? The Word of God. The vessel symbolizes their own lives, their own lives. We are, remember how David cried out in Psalm 31, 12, I am like a broken vessel. Peter refers to wives as the weaker vessel. And that's speaking of our physical strength. Um, Paul, writing with regard to God's work in believers' lives, says this, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So while all of the virgins had the word of God, only five of them had oil in their vessels. In other words, only five of ten had genuine saving faith in Christ. Although similar to the others in outward appearance, the five virgins without oil were not born again by the Holy Spirit. True redemption, true salvation is more than just a mere confession of faith. You know, these virgins were looking for the return of their Messiah, just like the other five. Um, but salvation is more than just confession of faith. It demands true renewal by way of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately for them, it was not until the bridegroom's sudden appearance that they made the tragic discovery that they were not ready for him. They had not properly prepared for his return because they had no oil in their vessels to fill their lamps, as did the five wise virgins. When the five foolish virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. If you had a kerosene lamp, you know what, it's got a wick in it and you need to trim it. They got up and they trimmed their lamps, the wicks. Their lamps quickly went out. And there might have been a little bit of oil on that wick, but it didn't last. It just went out. And when they went over to their vessels to fill their lamps with oil, you know, they didn't have any. I came, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. The cry and the crisis occurred at what hour? Midnight, right, midnight. That's what we're told here. But remember now, this is a parable, and this does not necessarily tell us the hour of Christ's second coming. Because what had he already said? No man knoweth the day or the hour. Um, so to say that the Lord's second coming will be at 12 o'clock midnight w wouldn't be consistent with what, I mean, it could be. But we can't say dogmatically that this is going to be the case. Number one, this is a parable. Number two, um, the midnight here is speaking of the darkest hour. And we know that at the 
Lord's coming, second coming, it will indeed be the darkest hour this world has ever seen. It will be at the end of the Great Tribulation when, you know, the seven vile judgments are being poured out. And the, and the sun, literally it will be the darkest hour because we are also told that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give her light. And as far as spiritual darkness is concerned, remember when the Lord asked this question in uh, Luke 18, 8, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? You know, there will be a lot of people saved during the tribulation, but most of them will be martyred. So he says, you know, when I come back, will there be any? There will be. But, you know, he's saying there won't be many. There won't be much faith. So at midnight, meaning the darkest time this earth has ever seen spiritually and physically, a cry will go forth, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And all ten of the virgins, we are told, they were sleeping and slumbering, but they woke up in a hurry. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be a quiet and private event. There will be nothing boring about it, <laughs> nothing dull at all. No one will keep on sleeping that was sleeping. It will be startling, it will be surprising, and it will be shocking, which is the whole point of this parable. Christ is warning his future listeners to not let his appearance be a negatively surprising and shocking event for them. You know, find out too late that they weren't ready. The five foolish virgins, while waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom, would have made many claims to be excited about the coming event. But their actions spoke louder than their words. You know, it's easy to say, it's easy to talk the talk, isn't it? But what speaks louder? The walk of the talk. They would say with the other five virgins, the virgins, they would say, oh, yes, we can't wait. You know, we're counting off the days. We can't wait till all this is over with and he comes back. But they weren't prepared. Their actions spoke louder than their words. They might have said they longed for his return, but they did not bother enough to be properly prepared for it. And when the midnight cry pierced the quiet of the night, the foolish virgins frantically tried to get the wise virgins to share their oil with them. But the wise virgins answered and said, look at verse 9, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Now, the refusal, that sounds kind of selfish when you first read it, doesn't it? But the refusal on the part of these wise virgins could not be a matter of selfishness. It couldn't be. Otherwise, Jesus would not have referred to them as wise. We know that. If the wise virgins gave the foolish virgins some of their oil, it would mean that none of the ten lamps that they carried would last sufficiently long enough to get them through the festivities of the rest of the night. It wouldn't get them, you know, to, to travel to wherever the bridegroom was at his father's house. Because the vessels didn't carry a whole lot of oil, just enough to pour in the lamp, you know, and fill it up. But if they shared what they had with the foolish virgins, nobody would have enough oil to get to the, father, to the bridegroom. Do you understand me? They couldn't share it because then they'd, all, they'd be foolish too. <laughs> their refusal was a matter of their um, wisdom, and plus it was a matter of their more pressing desire to meet the bridegroom. 
they knew the oil was essential for them to go out to meet the bridegroom and to see him and to be accepted by him. The wise would have been foolish themselves if they had taken oil out of their vessels to share with the foolish virgins, for then none of them would have had sufficient enough oil to get them uh, through the festivities of the rest of the night. Furthermore, some things just simply cannot be shared. Now, I wish they could be in this case. I wish I could share my faith with someone else, don't you? I wish I could just say, here, have some. Have some Holy Spirit. But we can't. A believer can share his testimony with others, and we can share our lamp. We can sh- That's what we're doing today. We can share the Word of God with others, but we cannot share the Holy Spirit. In other words, we cannot, none of us can give the Holy Spirit to another person to enlighten him. No one can be saved on the strength of another person's faith and readiness to meet Christ. Salvation is a very personal thing, and God alone can and does impart it. That's why for someone to say, well, I'm a Christian because my mom and dad were Christians and I was raised a Christian, uh -uh uh-uh-uh. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christians. It's an individual thing. You yourself need to be born again. You yourself need to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to come in and save you and receive the Holy Spirit. It's an individual thing entirely. Even you can't say, I, w- I grew up in the church, so I'm a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. You have to be born again. The wise virgins, with their lit lamps, I'm almost done, went out to meet the bridegroom. And they went in with him to the marriage feast. And then what happened? Bam. Just like Noah's Ark. Bam. The door was shut. Verse 10. The unprepared, foolish virgins had no choice but to wait until morning. You know, they didn't have oil in their lamps, so they couldn't go at midnight. They couldn't see their way to the store. Of course, I don't know who they'd buy from because if they were, if they were virgins, that means they didn't take the mark of the beast. But then I have to remember, I was thinking all this. So how could they go and buy? You couldn't, have, you couldn't buy without the mark of the beast, but this is a parable, so I can't stretch it too far. But they'd have to wait till morning. And uh, whether they bought, were able to buy any oil, this, the parable doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that when they arrived at where the banquet feast was, at the father's house, they were too late because the door had already been shut. And they cried outside the door, just like all the people in Noah's day, I'm sure, were, as the waters rose and rose. And the, can't you just imagine them pounding on the door to the ark? These virgins were begging and crying for admittance. Lord, Lord, open to us. Sounds like familiar words. Didn't we read these words back in Matthew chapter 7? But the bridegroom's tragic response was what? I know you not. No oil in your vessel. I don't have a personal relationship with you. I don't know you. And that's a very similar one to the words that Christ will speak at the great white throne judgment in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, when he says, I never knew you. What? Depart from me. And then uh, back in Matthew 7, after he said those words, he goes on, interestingly, and that's the Sermon on the Mount, he goes on to compare or describe those who hear and act upon his words as wise men who build their houses upon a rock, on a solid rock. 
he described those who do not hear and act upon his words as being like a foolish man who doesn't build his house on a rock but builds it on sand. And when the rains descend and the floods come and the winds blow, the house built on the rock foundation will stand while the house built on sand will fall and great, Jesus said, will be the fall of it. The Greek word used not only of the foolish man who built his house upon sand, but the Greek word that is used for the five foolish virgins is not a very complimentary word. You all know it. It's the word moron. In other words, stupid. They were stupid. That sounds pretty bad, pretty negative, doesn't it? Jesus is calling them stupid. One who is really stupid in this world, the one who is really a moron, is the one who does not prepare ahead of time to face eternity and to meet his maker. That is the stupid person in the world. The fool has said in his heart, the moron has said in his heart, there is no God. They, don't, they just go on living and don't even think about the future. And Jesus calls it like it is. Well, the wise man of Matthew 7, 24 and 25 is like the wise virgins because he did prepare ahead of time for the time of testing and ultimate judgment, whereas the foolish man and the foolish virgins did not plan ahead. What made the difference? Well, the wise man and the wise virgins had ears to hear the word, Lord's words of warning, and they acted upon those words. You know, we're not to be hearers only, but doers. We need to act upon what we hear. It is impossible to be wise if you are not in the word of God. Wisdom doesn't come from this world. Wisdom comes from this book. You cannot be wise in God's eyes if you're not in the word of God. You have to have your lamp. It's only there that you can hear the Lord speak to you. We cannot possibly act upon something if we don't know what it is we are being told to act upon, right? Makes sense. The Jewish people of the tribulation will have plenty of opportunities to hear the gospel message. They will have the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They will have, at least for the first three and a half years, the two mighty witnesses who will be broadcast. You know, their message will be broadcast to the whole world. Uh, they will have all the saved tribulation saints. They will have all our left-behind scriptures and biblical materials. And they will have the worldwide preaching of the angel of Revelation 14.6. So there will be no excuse for those Jews who will be unprepared for Christ's return, his sudden appearance. They're prepared. Those who are prepared with oil in their vessels will be received joyfully into the kingdom, and the unprepared will be excluded how long? Eternally. So, question, are you wise or are you foolish? You have the lamp. In one hand, I know you do because it's probably all on your laps, right? But do you have the oil in your vessel? I hope so. If not, make sure today that you have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, may we each continually be watching and praying with all our full spiritual armor in place, remembering that we are indeed in the enemy's camp. 
and he will do everything in his power to keep us from being effective witnesses for you, Lord, and to keep us from the word of God, which illuminates the path before us and also is our one and only weapon of warfare, the sword of the word. Father, may each and every one of us hear your words of warning, and may we then rightly act upon them to ensure that we are indeed properly prepared with the oil, with the Holy Spirit in our vessels, in our lives, our hearts, so that not one of us here will ever, ever have to experience hearing those most horrible words from Christ's lips, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, I pray that that will not ever, ever be the case with anyone who is here this morning. If there's any doubt, I pray she will seek her leader or me or Terry and take care of that matter this very day. Lord, we love you and we thank you and praise your name for this beautiful spring day that you have given to us. May each of us enjoy it and may we be salt and light for you until we come back again next week. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.